0: and welcome to episode 18 of The Coriolis Effect. Every human is a world of its own. I'm Dave. And I'm
1: Matthew. And we've got a slightly different episode, I think, for you this week. Uh, this, this episode, I should say. Uh, lo- lots, of, lots of the same features that we've had before, but uh, a new edition, I think. <laughs> we'll kick <laughs> yeah. off, of course, with the world of gaming. And then... We're taking you into the kitchen for a recipe. Uh,
0: then we're talking about Alain's temple. Uh, I I still can't get over the idea that you know here here we are turning ourselves into the hairy bikers or the the geeky gamers or whatever. I mean, when I you first explain when this.
1: You... we're not turning ourselves into the hairy well, bikers. When
0: you first mentioned it, I thought that you were joking. <laughs> and now you've gone and done it, but uh, no, it's fine. Oh, it's fine. It sounds like a love. Well. If, is this the same one that you did when I was when we were over for the last Coriolis game? So have I eaten I it? I think so. Yeah,
1: you have eaten it. I'm. Pretty it sure was I've lovely done it for you guys. Yeah.
0: Anyway, sorry. Carry on. Carry on with what's happening. I think this we've week.
1: done it for Coriolis for, the, for, the, um, for our bottle episode that we recorded actually. Yeah. Anyway, after we we've then got a chat about Alaran's Temple. Alaran's Temple. Yeah. You've got an update on uh, the spectral corsair, and from that update, you've got a talent of the episode.
0: I do indeed.
1: So let's crack on with the world of gaming. Um, You were very excited last time we spoke about a new Simbaroom Kickstarter that was about to launch. Has that started?
0: I think, yeah, that has launched now. It's the uh, translation of the Indoros supplement. And yeah, I don't think I've got much else to say from what we said last time, other than I think the Kickstarter is now open. So get out there and back it if that's the kind of thing you want to back. And have you pledged? Uh, I haven't yet, uh, but I... Well, hey, look, I mean, I saw my sister for a coffee this morning. This is a digression that will be relevant. And she said that she'd listened to the last episode. And she joked about when we were saying, glad our wives don't listen to this, because then they'll realise how much money we spend on Kickstarters. (laughs) There is is a cash flow issue about how much money I can spend on Kickstarters. My wife hasn't found out yet, because she doesn't listen to the podcasts. So I just need to manage my... But your my...
1: sister has a point of blackmail.
0: <laughs> she's not going to blackmail me, I don't think. She's not, she's not that that sort. She's nice, my sister. But anyway, there is a budget thing I need to go through about, do I have enough money for this this time around? Which I almost certainly will. But um, yeah, I just haven't got around to doing that calculation yet. But it's an interesting
1: one for you, because I, I know that you specifically aren't using any of the pre-published campaign material for the campaign you're running with us. No. So in a way, you do have to kind of question the wisdom of whether it's worth spending out on it.
0: No, that's very true. I did get the Thistlehold uh, setting expansion, which has, I mean, partly, I, mean, I did get that though, partly because I thought I would set the game in Thistlehold. But actually Thistlehold was a bit too big for what I was looking for. But it gave me some interesting uh, sort of insights into some of the things and some good ideas about what I could try and transfer into the Granite Hole campaign, and you know me—I like having glossy, really good role-playing books on my shelves. So, I—I yeah, I am easily persuaded to buy a good supplement, even if I'm not likely to play it anytime soon. So, we'll see. But yeah, I've got—I think there's um, a little while left on the Kickstarter at the time that we're recording. So,
1: and if anybody's listening and they've enjoyed our tale of the lonesome oka actual plays. It's worth saying two things. First of all, that um, you're about to finish editing, are you not, Uh, the next adventure?
0: I am, yeah. I'm in the process of editing the tale of the Lonesome Changeling, which is the second adventure in that campaign, which hopefully I'll get done, uh, well, the first episode anyway, reasonably soon. Uh, Other things have got in the way. I, I have been a bit, not slack, but I haven't. Cracked on with it, it's been a bit slap. I might have been been busy. I've been busy. I got between the
1: last couple of episodes of our main show. I got out four episodes (laughs) of Tales from the Loop. I edited those like that. That's
0: true. That's true.
1: And then you've been sitting on this one, which I have to say, we had that problem syncing the, the two tracks. I went through that minute by minute and sync that manually and you've done nothing with
0: it (laughs) no i have done something with it i just haven't finished it yet so anyway okay
1: so that will be coming if you're interested in that
0: listeners before before we came on the air matthew and i were, were were talking about you know are there cracks in our partnership we're sniping at each other a little bit you know it's all a bit could this be the last ever coriolis podcast
1: well, it definitely no. can't be the last ever one because uh, <laughs> you're contractually obliged to do the next one.
0: No, it won't be. It's just, uh, uh, no. I think, I think we're, we're very good at um, prodding and poking each other when we're not fulfilling what the other thinks should be a basic requirement of getting on and doing <laughs> stuff, which is fair enough. So
1: You mean like reading emails and stuff?
0: Yeah, like reading emails of the content crazy. we're going to talk That's about. That's a crazy Matthew.
1: idea. Why does anybody read emails? They're on email. You just refer to them when you need them. Uh, so, but I just want to say, if anybody's inspired by the tale of the Lonesome Ogre uh, to pick up Simba Room and they haven't done so, this Kickstarter looks like a very cost-effective way not just to getting the new campaign material that they're kickstarting, it
0: does, but yeah. All
1: the stuff they've done before.
0: Yes, yeah. They're offering. Uh, are they offering everything they've done through this? I think
1: so. Yeah, I, yeah. There was. I, I I've just had a glance at it, and because obviously I'm not purchasing it. You are the um Simba Room GM and I'm happy to let you uh carry on being the Simba Room GM. But um but I did see that if I was inclined, I think pretty much everything that's been released before is available as an add-on at a you know reasonably discounted price for yeah. Kickstarter. So
0: go for it guys. If if you're interested, go for it. It's a it's a cracking game.
1: Cool. And of course we're getting a whole bunch more visitors to the Third Horizon as well, because uh, not only has the emissary lost uh, English translation uh, Kickstarter campaign finished very successfully. And I didn't cling on to my. Um, my I campaign.
0: know. I saw. I know. Oh God, You just lost your bottle at the last, didn't you, Matt? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I did. I did. My wife would kill me. Uh, but, you, no. but your
0: wife doesn't listen to the show, so we know she'll never find out.
1: <laughs> but she would find out when I had the lovely print to put on the wall somewhere in the house.
0: Yeah. But then you say, Oh, it was a free add on for. for uh...
1: (laughs) Yeah. They gave it to me just because they love the support I'm doing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Dave's got one too.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Luckily she never comes around here. We're too far away. So uh, you'd never know. (laughs)
1: Uh, anyway, that's uh, that's not the thing I have, to, and also the the beauty of going for um, is it ambassador level, the same one that you've gone for. Yeah, is that I then get the beautiful picture on the book, so I'll you know I'll that's why I want it really. I didn't fancy the limited edition cover that came with the icon. But I noticed that we saw an up peak in um, in visitations, and we've got more listeners. <laughs> visitations
0: now. makes it sound like we're being haunted. Yeah, it does. Uh,
1: in fact, that last sentence was almost entirely bollocks. So, uh, I mashed up English there.
0: <laughs> but, well, it's, it's If I'm editing this one, it's definitely staying in now. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll just in a, in a feeble attempt to,
1: to give you another sentence to put in its place, I will say what we did see was increased interest in the podcast after the last Kickstarter. So welcome aboard all the new listeners who yeah. um, have joined us. From that Kickstarter, and um, welcome aboard any uh, Francophones and uh, Germanophiles. No, I don't know. No, there'd be people who love Germany, and I'm actually people thinking about people who live in Germany. G- Germanophones, Germanophones. I guess or
0: f- French and German people. Is that a better? Yes, way of the it? French and German. Speakers we welcome the French who... and German, if they are listening, which they probably aren't, <laughs> if they've got any sense. But you know. Uh, But if they are
1: listening and uh, they've they've just got into Coriolis from the French and German Kickstarters that have. uh, Well, I think the French one uh, is still going strong, but it will be completing before we get this episode out. So and it's, you know, obviously it's made its target and loaded stretch goals. Um, I think it includes stuff like Emissary Lost being translated as well. And the dice that we all got in emissary lost as well so loads of stuff there some lovely um tokens i noticed lovely uh darkness point tokens yes as well, which yeah. Yeah, we haven't seen anyway a whole bunch uh, uh, uh more people coming to the horizon hopefully out of those two different language editions of the game so if any of you are listening to our terrible uh english then um
0: then welcome, welcome <laughs> yes. to Coriolis. Um, and, and I say, I hope they speak English at least as well or better than you do, Matt, because yes. I only know one phrase in German, and I learnt it out of a Not the nine o'clock News book many years ago, and that phrase was, is meine Beutelmaus hat Verstopfung? Ah, my wombat is constipated. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your German is excellent. Actually, I think the literal, the literal translation is, my wombat is shit-stuffed. But uh, <laughs> I think I think constipated is probably the more polite version. Anyway.
1: Yes. I learned that off your brother. So
0: I assume the yeah. two of
1: you had the same map, not not newsbook.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if any German listeners are listening and that means something else entirely, please let us know. Because if it's something really offensive, I'd like to know because then I'll never say it again.
1: <laughs> so, More offensive than a constipated wombat, you mean? Yeah,
0: I mean, that's not it's not terribly offensive, is it really? It might it might be offensive for the wombat, perhaps, but shall anyway, we get on with the content yeah, of this programme? <laughs> let's uh, get on. Because I'm
1: quite proud of the next piece here. What I'm offering here is is two things really. And it's not you and I becoming the hairy bikers, because frankly I'm not fat enough. I mean you are, obviously, Dave. But I'm not fat enough to be one of the hairy bikers.
0: Well, I think there is possibly debate to be had in that one. You're you're quite fat as well, you know that. You're really just the the fat fat gits.
1: (laughs) We are mature, shall we say, gamers. Um, We could have been out there running around the city, uh, but instead we sit at tables rolling dice. We tend (laughs) as a a hobby towards the... um, the upper end of the BMI scale. But no, we're not We're not being hairy bikers. <laughs> what I'm doing, I'm emulating my two heroes of podcasting, Ken and Robin, of Ken and Robin's Talk About Stuff. And they uh, occasionally have a journey into the food hut where they talk about ingredients and eating out and occasionally give recipes. And I thought, actually, the second thing that we can be doing here is offering respite to our poor brethren in the... Swedish Kickstarter community, <laughs> who still don't have all their rewards from Freya Lagan's original Kickstarter of Coriolis.
0: No. No, I think um, maybe uh, if they need any help, they can take your recipe and you know that can fill out a page for them in the book as they're putting it together. That's a good idea, actually. We'll we'll offer it to them.
1: Uh, <laughs> it saves them writing an extra page of stuff, I'm sure. <laughs> Although they've got to now translate that into Swedish, I imagine, for that book. They couldn't get away with doing it in English. Obviously, recipes probably aren't the best podcasting material. If no. I was doing it on YouTube, I'd be showing you the techniques and you could watch me banging all this stuff into a saucepan and frying until it's golden brown and, and stuff like that. But... um. I'll also put the text of this recipe up on uh, my blog when we drop this episode. So if people really are interested in cooking it, and it is delicious, then uh, then they'll find it there.
0: If people aren't interested in it, it's only about another three minutes, guys. So hold on, and we'll get onto something more sensible in a minute.
1: Yeah. If you If you're not interested in <laughs> cooking, just fast forward four minutes, and uh, we'll yeah. get into our
0: lunch sample. Right, shall we listen to your recipe then, Matthew? Oh, go on. (laughs) Let's do that thing.
1: When we went to Sweden to chat with the guys from Friel again, they told us that they hadn't always been as good at running Kickstarters as they are now. They mentioned that they had been a little too ambitious, setting stretch goals for the Swedish language edition of Coriolis. In particular, they mentioned that they hadn't yet delivered on Wahib's cookbook, a stretch goal unlocked at 200,000 kroner. I'm sure they're working on it and it will get delivered, but in the meantime there are over 400 Swedish backers who are starving, desperately awaiting the delivery of that PDF so that they can cook and eat a meal at last. In the absence of Wahib's cookbook, the Coriolis effect comes to the rescue. I thought I'd share one of the recipes that I make for the boys when it's my turn to host a session. I always like to make a meal that is at least tangentially related to the game that we're playing, whether it's venison stew for A Song of Ice and Fire, or sausage and mash when we're playing dashing British World War I pilots. This one is a sort of curry, with a wide enough variety of spices to require a visit to the Spice Plaza on Coriolis Station. And, while we're at the market, here's the shopping list. With apologies to our American listeners, measurements are metric. If it helps, a pound is about 500 grams. It's a pretty forgiving recipe, so if you want to replace the specific measurements with some, you'll probably get away with it. Do watch out for the spices, though. This provides four generous portions. You'll need... Two tablespoons of vegetable oil. 500 grams of goat or lamb fillet cut into cubes. Back when I were a lad, goat was quite cheap, but now it's become fashionable. It's got more expensive than lamb. Two onions, roughly chopped. Three garlic cloves, peeled and crushed. Two green chilies, finely chopped. These may be optional, depending on your taste. One tablespoon of fresh ginger, shredded. One tablespoon of ground turmeric. One and a half tablespoons of garam masala. And one and a half tablespoons of ground cumin. One tablespoon of paprika. One tablespoon of flour. Four sweet potatoes, chopped. One tin, about 400 grams, of chopped tomatoes. Half a block, that's about 100 grams, of creamed coconut, dissolved in about 400 milliliters of water. 250 grams, that's a generous handful, of baby spinach leaves, pomegranate seeds to dress, and steamed rice with which to serve. Turn on the oven and let it heat up to 150 degrees centigrade. This is a dish best slow cooked. In the meantime, heat a large saucepan and add a tablespoon of the vegetable oil and then the meat. Brown it over a high heat for three to four minutes Then take it out of the saucepan. Reduce the heat and add another tablespoon of vegetable oil. Fry the onions, garlic, chilies, and ginger for two to three minutes until they're golden and soft. Add all the spices and fry, stirring well for another minute. Add the flour and cook for a further minute. Throw in the chopped sweet potato, the tin of tomatoes, and the coconut milk and heat to bring to a simmer. Put the lamb back in, and heat the mixture until simmering. Then cover and put in the oven for about one hour, or until the lamb is tender and cooked through. You can cook it on top of the stove, but you've got to watch out that it doesn't burn. Just before serving, take it out of the oven, and stir in the spinach. Serve it onto warmed plates with steamed basmati rice, and sprinkle the pomegranate seeds over the top. It's a dish Wahib himself would be proud to
0: serve. Well, I can say that um, when I had that, it was very, very delicious indeed. It was much tastier than the uh, our standard fare of gaming, which is Pringles and stacks and uh, other uh, chocolate things. And it was delicious, and I'm I'm very pleased. I mean, Matthew has done very well at always trying to meet the uh, the, the the feel of the game we're playing in whatever he cooks for us and when we play at his place, whereas I just do a giant pot of chilli, whatever game we're playing. Tony just does pizza, whatever game we're playing. Oh, that's not true, though. Last time we had a lovely lasagna that Tony's wife oh, cooked for us.
1: Oh, Tony's wife cooked gorgeous lasagna last time, but what, what, what were we playing? Oh, we were, we were playing the Fate that was Fate, yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine your spies and adventurers eating lasagna, actually. So. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it was delicious no. food, and I have to say uh, uh, that you cook a, a a really good chili, and we've had some other stuff as well. You've done a, a chicken curry and things like that for us. Yeah,
0: in the past. Uh, sushi once in a while. Not that I make it though; I just buy it. And and I remember when I remember once um, was it? I made a load of sandwiches, didn't I? And there just wasn't quite enough, and you very politely called it an elegant sufficiency of sandwiches. <laughs> <Do you laughs> think we're- there was exactly enough.
1: That's was what I was trying to say. <laughs> it was exactly the right amount. <laughs> don't feel bad about not making quite enough sandwiches.
0: <laughs> no, well, yeah, as a host, you, you don't want people to get hungry now, do you?
1: Yeah, let's talk about gaming, though. People let's... aren't here to listen to our culinary exploits, unless, of course, <laughs> they're Coriolis themed. Uh,
0: even, even then, I would question whether they're here to listen to our culinary exploits. <laughs> uh, Alam's Temple. That yes. was your
1: homework from our last episode. And I must admit, I read about them as well, but um, I can remember hardly anything about them. So so tell me, just who are Alam's Temple?
0: <laughs> well, it's a good question. They are, I mean, the basic background is they are a very old faction. They're first come. They have bases or, or their main centres of, of control are in Kua, Coriolis and in Mira. And they are a faction of courtesans philosophers dance masters and kind of perhaps unusually tacking onto that list assassins so it's Hmm. um it's a slightly unusual mix and one of the things that struck me when i was looking at it was alarms temple doesn't feel to me like one of the big monolithic factions it doesn't read or feel the same doesn't seem to have the same sort of sort of grounding as the Order of the Prior or the Draconites or some of the other, you know, consortium. They feel a bit I uh, just kind of struggling to work out what what they were for. You know, what, what was what what was their objective? What's their actually is, is Alarm's Temple more of a philosophy? A bit like, you know, Buddhism might be here. Hmm. Um, rather than actually a sort of political a political ideology. But they do have a very Prominent position in the Third Horizon because their schools, so the Alarms Courtesan Academy, which is uh, on Coriolis, attracts the 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 wealthiest pupils. You know, the wealthiest families want to send their children to this academy to be to be educated, to be trained. Also, uh, they have a uh, a kind of. I'm not quite sure what the what the right word is. They have a powerful, sort of influential position in. The general politics by, by the fact that in many parts of the Third Horizon, a important political figure wouldn't be seen out without his courtesan advisor. so they are kind of, almost in the background. They are with all these politically powerful people. They attract the children of all these political powerful people and, and the wealthy people, and they train them. But there's no, I mean, they, they, you know, they, uh, you know, the key phrase that I found in the book. Um, for Alarm's Temple is the knowledge of the purity of the present will help the people of the third horizon live better lives and they talk about the eight arts of pleasure which is what they what they train their courtesans and their dance masters with so what are they actually after are, are they there just for the common good is that, you know, are they, gen- are they genuinely there looking out for the good of the third horizon as a whole so it feels to me it's a bit less sort of nakedly self-serving than the other factions we've looked at, because they've all seemed to be very, uh, you know, me, 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 me. We've got to be putting our own interests first and sort of kill anybody who who opposes us. And it doesn't feel like that. So that's kind of why I felt, you know, are these the Buddhists of the third horizon with an yeah. open and okay. sort of very altruistic philosophy?
1: So I've got one question. My, my first most burning question is, I can't remember, do they have a seat on the Council of Factions?
0: They do have a seat on the council of factions, yes. So right. that implies that they have a, you know, a powerful, you know, equivalent position to.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting you say that, isn't it? Because because um, the consortium has got, you know, a a massive business and media and research element. Of course, they've got what three or four seats on the council. Actually, the consortium have the order, the Pariah, leader. You know, they do heresy. I mean, they don't do heresy. They wipe heresy out, obviously, (laughs) as uh, anybody should. Uh, The Zenithian hegemony, you know exactly where they're coming from. They are wanting to uh, impose their own brand of what is right on the rest of the horizon. And that's a very sort of, um, uh, shall we say, Earth-centric, we're the best guys, us, us Zenithians. The Free League, you know, they've got aims and and desires. And uh, again, they're moving money about. But what do Alam's Temple get out of Mm. the councillor factions?
0: It's a really good question. Because I I think potentially you could look at Alam's Temple in a number of ways. Or maybe two in particular. One is that they are just, or they see their mission as sort of protecting the Third Horizon in its entirety, as an entity, not protecting any given, any given faction or any given, you know, planet or system or anything. But the health of the Third Horizon as a whole might be their, their objective, their driver, mm. and they are then training people and politically guiding people in in a way that is to the best interests of the Horizon as a whole, but without doing it in a active way, just kind of being philosophers and advisors. Who are neutral and are just alongside everybody else. The other way of thinking that's, about it,
1: and that's quite attractive. Uh, you know, I'm seeing. You said, you know, what are they for? You could give a very flippant answer. They are for players who want to play Inara out of Firefly.
0: Exactly. So there are. So there are there are four there are four things that this reminded me of uh, in other fiction, which I'll come to. Uh, in a minute, but one of them was the Companions Guild. And I said to myself, is this just the Companions Guild, but with a really sharp edge with the Assassins as well? But that brings me to my second thought. So if that isn't right, or if that isn't the the way that any particular GM wants to play Alarm's Temple in their game, there is another way of looking at it. Because they've kind of infiltrated themselves into all these positions of, of power and influence. You know, they are educating the leader's for the next generation so are they educating them indoctrinating them in the way that they want them to be
1: are they the power behind the throne
0: yeah are they molding the political direction but mm. from behind the throne as it were so that's another way potentially of looking at it and i think there's a you can take the idea of them having a arm of uh, you know the black lotuses their assassins i don't know what we call it school or chapter within mm-hmm. uh, within the within the temple what? Yeah. What? Why would they have assassins if they weren't there? You know, are they paid assassins? Are they just mercenaries? I don't get that sense. But there's nothing in the in the books to say in any way whether that's that's the case or not. I would feel that they're probably not paid assassins. But then, who directs them to their target? Who do they assassinate? So I wonder whether you could have a kind of um second foundation feel to this. So uh, Isaac Asimov, uh, the Foundation series of books. The second foundation was hidden and they were, uh, they could use, they they had mental abilities and one of the things that Alarm's Temple can have is the ability to create memes and this memeturgy idea where they are able to implant or sow the seeds of ideas in the minds of other people. And again, that plays into the idea that they are influencing very, very subtly and very covertly what's going on and they are using this Mimaturgy ability to do that, so i I do wonder whether then they are actually see themselves as above everything else that is going on. They are directing everything that's going with a quiet hand from the shadows to help the common good to 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 support the common good of the third horizon as a whole, and therefore they then decide who they need to send their black lotus assassins to go and kill in order to fulfil that common good. It does. There's something qu-
1: really attractive about that. I, I, I mean, it, I guess it could be, it sort of lends to a somewhat Panglossian uh, approach that this must therefore be the best of all possible worlds, because if they're any good at what they do, they've already killed all the bad guys. And, well, well.
0: interestingly, uh, you say that the, uh, the background to Nazarene's sacrifice is quite explicit that the Black Lotus assassins from Alarm's temple were key in assassinating the leadership of Nazarene's sacrifice. So that would fit quite well with that theory, that they are, they've are they decided that Nazarene's sacrifice is too dangerous. They then send the Black Lotus assassins out to kill off their leadership. That works really quite well in that kind of theory. It does beg a question, which is quite an interesting one. So who then decides what that common good is? Or how? what right does Alarm's Temple or the leaders of Alarm's Temple have to put themselves in the position of being that moral arbiter for what is right and what is wrong, yeah, so there's an interesting element in, uh, uh, you know, in that they might be doing it for all the right reasons. They might actually genuinely, in that leadership, be deciding to take action which they think is genuinely for the future good of the Third Horizon. But what if they're wrong? They're genuinely trying to do it for the right reason, but actually they've made a mistake, and that might be a really interesting premise for a campaign or or uh, a scenario. Yeah, you.
1: You're making me really want to play one, actually. And I know <laughs> yeah. that
0: in the last episode, I was saying, "Oh, I
1: wish I'd been playing a nomad." The nomads are the best thing. <laughs> oh, actually, I think, I think probably the nomads are a great gming tool because anything you can think of, you can pass off as you know. If, if you can't fit it into any of the other factions or uh, any of the parts of, of of the world, then stick it stick it in with the nomads because there's sure to be a nomad somewhere doing something like that. But this is actually making me interested more as a player. You know, what you've just sold to me is this lovely idea of somebody who's possibly internally conflicted. You know, every single decision that he might make out with the party, he's thinking, is this for the greater good? And who am I to actually be deciding what the greater good is? Yeah. But at the same time, one feels... You know, you've been to this school. You've had this amazing training, uh, and I'm sure you you know you have discussed all of the ethics, right back to ancient texts from 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 Earth, you know, Plato and stuff like that. Stuff that is hidden, secret knowledge now, uh, as well as the more modern stuff and the study of the icons.
0: Yeah. When I first had a quick glance through. Alarms Temple. I, I kind of thought oh, this is all a bit dull, and then thinking about it and reading it in a bit more detail, all of this kind of layers beneath layers all started coming out, and it seemed you know suddenly, like you say, become much more interesting. Um, there's a quote I just want to read out of the book briefly about a Black Lotus assassin called Aframidi. Uh and the quote is about her. And, I, and this sort of bring me on to where I sort of think there are parallels with this in in other in other fiction, but the quote goes. A mere whisper of the name chills the blood of regents and rulers everywhere. Perhaps the most skilled assassin of the Black Lotuses of Alarm. She has elevated her craft to a form of art. There are no known pictures of her, and she is said to be a master of changing her appearance. Now, when I was looking at some of this and then started looking at the Black Lotuses, I immediately thought face dancers from Dune. So in Dune, mm. you've got the, the, the Benetilacs who have the face dancers, who are assassins they're genetically altered humans humanites who are able to shapeshift or change their appearance so I you know I think that's that really fits quite well but I think also in another sense I had a real a real feeling that they were like the Bene Gesserit of yeah Dune because they are turning up alongside the emperor in Dune they are turning up you know there's a Bene Gesserit sister in every big family in every big house so I've kind of rolled up you know the companions out of Firefly uh with a sharp edge with the second foundation mind controlling uh scientists with the sisters of the, the Bene Gesserit and the face dancers of the Bene Tleilax and I love it it's a great um, you know, combination of things that not only give you some really good story ideas, but actually just imagining all that stuff together is, gives a really good feel. I think it would give a really nice setting and look and feel for any game you might play in that in that area.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you've convinced me. I mean, I you know, I'm thinking you've been talking mostly, of course, about feminine characters in a lot of the the media you've been comparing them with, but of course, the companions in in Firefly you know, within the story, they they could be male or female.
0: Yeah and Absolutely. I guess
1: the Benny Gezeret you've got to be female. But um but this I think I think in Alam's Temple you can be of either sex. And yeah, I kind absolutely.
0: of really want to play one now. But I think there's um I won't be able to find it in the book instantly because you know, I never care when I'm in the middle of recording something. But I think one of the Alarms Temple representatives either on the council or in their entourage is androgynous or genderless or both gender so the gender of it is again totally irrelevant I think
1: mm. yeah Term. I'm just looking that up now Terminus Leet it's not giving um, necessarily uh, a very gendered name there uh, but I can't see a description for him anywhere or him her them should yeah. we say
0: and there was, yeah. there, was some, there was something I found that I think was talking about the council rather than talking about alarms temple, um, but I won't be able to find it without doing the search through the whole PDF again. Yeah. So I think there's there's lots of interesting stuff there, and there's a couple of things we haven't even touched on. So for example, the, the alarms temple were the guardians of proxy tech, the the you know the technology that you can use to experience somebody else's you know somebody else's life, somebody else's experience, um, and they used it for. Uh, you know, positive educational and um, therapy, medical therapy reasons. Whereas obviously the syndicate got their hands on it and have been using it for effectively snuff videos. Mm. In the book, it says that Alarm's Temple have tried, but have been unsuccessful to retrieve it. And I guess that now once some elements of the syndicate, you know, and going back to our conversation about the syndicate a few uh, episodes ago, you know, it's not just one organisation. It's a huge range of different, sort of groups and factions i guess yeah. that horse is that horse is bolted you know they'll never gonna be able to get the proxy tech back because it's probably been promulgated throughout so many different criminal gangs now that it's out there they won't be able to do it but maybe yes. they want to use it uh use it as a reason to you know take revenge you know maybe kill the people who are using it to protect the third horizon perhaps even though that might be an impossible yeah. task the other yeah. things that they they also have a, a specific weapon, uh, the hand fan, which is an energy weapon. And I think in the book it, it, it kind of implies that anyone could buy one, but I do wonder whether that should be a faction tech thing. And actually you can only have them. You, know, you are awarded them if you've graduated from one of the academies as a courtesan or something.
1: That sounds a very reasonable house rule if it isn't um, specified in the book as being faction yeah. tech. Uh, i found your I found your bigender, actually. Okay, cool. Aside from Terminos Leet, the the faction's council member, the temple is home to famous people like Hija Gua, the bigender courtesan from Manele, the war dancer Palmyra Ferex from Mira, and Darkes Laman, the slum poet, who, in his war poems, mocks rulers and plebeians alike.
0: Yeah. Oh god. I
1: really like this fact.
0: That. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's also interesting. Certainly, that last one—that poet—it kind of implies also that alarms temple are potentially untouchable. So he feels mm. either he's either very courageous and doesn't isn't concerned about some uh, some recrimination coming back on him, or he knows he's safe because who would kill a alarm temple dance master or bard or something? Because maybe that is just unheard of it's just the, not the done thing and you'll be breaking some huge societal taboo if you took violent retribution against a, a, a poet of Alarm's Temple who was writing poetry that was negative about your about what you were doing Um, and who's to say that your girlfriend or boyfriend
1: isn't actually a black lotus and that yeah. the retribution for killing him would be short possibly sweet but uh, deadly
0: or the retribution might be that your courtesan who's been with you for many years as your political advisor now disowns you and leaves you. And you know, uh, the Alarm's temple won't speak with you again because you've done something unspeakable. You are beyond contempt. So it didn't have to be a violent retribution. It could be a entirely sort of political and social one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One last thing just, which Mm -hmm. I think supports my, uh, I might be being a bit pedantic here, but this might support my, argument that alarms temple are kind of looking above the individual and above the 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 level of the factions and the systems and are looking at the health of the third horizon as a whole is in their motto so their motto says every human is a world of its own now is that just being non-gender specific or is it actually depersonalizing the the individual so If it's depersonalising the individual, then again, maybe that suggests that individuals are actually unimportant and it's the health of their organism that is the third horizon that's much more important to them.
1: Yeah, or the health of the world as the individual, each of the worlds of the third horizon as an individual that needs care and training and moulding into the ideal. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm really glad they're on the first come side, if they're on any side at all. Um, <laughs> then, because uh, I I you know I don't like these Zenithians coming in here thinking they're all that and um,
0: <laughs> giving it the big I am kind of thing. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I like to I like I like a, a mysterious and powerful organization on the other okay. side. And in fact, the two there are two mysterious organizations among the first come. Not just Alam's Temple, but the Draconites, of course, who joined uh, the First Come, even though they're all off the ship.
0: Yes. Zenith. Yep.
1: So, yeah. Yeah. The powers. I love that. I oh, secret power. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I really want to play one. I need cool. to find a GM. <laughs> right. Um, now, I, I'm aware of the fact that I need to be uh, stopping this recording soon. Uh, so let's hear about the Spectral Corsair.
0: Yeah, right. So we have actually had two scenarios since the last recording, but I'm only going to talk about the, the, the first one. And then next time around, I'll talk about the uh, the last scenario, which was the combination. So a couple of things. This this scenario, which was uh, called a Wretched Hive of Scum and Villainy, finally saw the players get to Odicon. So they arrived in Odicon and th- there was a bit of effort getting there. There was a, a, a Legion fleet at the portal Basically guarding it from incursions coming out of Odacon rather than any reason for going in, and they made it quite clear to the players that they were on their own. If you go into Odacon, there's no rescue coming it's It's very dangerous there uh you know good luck <laughs> but um uh you know there will be no legion rescue for you so once inside, they then were relying upon Alina uh Alina Abdul who's been their passenger right from the start, and she was the one with the clue to help them find uh, Resim Alder who is you know, the, 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 the well, their destination for this campaign. So she advised them to go to a city called Calumet on a planet called Sharma and this was a, a zone of truce in Odicon where it was controlled by the Triumvirate which was uh, a leader from three of the you know, the three biggest collectives of people that were operating in Odicon One were Corsairs and Pirates uh, the second was the Nomad Federation, who were trying to uh, exploit uh, and maybe even to colonise certain areas of Odakon. And third was a conglomeration of salvagers, who were there, obviously, to to make the most money out of uh, the debris that's been left in the system. So they went to this city, a, a location of truce, as I say. And on the way there, Alina, as she has done throughout the campaign, was getting very amorous with the crew Uh, 8-bit who uh, has now decided following his rejuvenation in the chrysalis pod in the previous scenario he's decided that actually he needs to pay more attention to the icons and so he's becoming much more devout but he's fallen in love with Alina and didn't seem to mind so much that she was sort of shagging around with the rest of the crew largely she was being a bit uh, you know she's being quite discreet about it but there was a reason for that the reason for that was Alina was never what she seemed now through the campaign I dropped quite a lot of clues although admittedly possibly a bit obscure that she wasn't all that she was saying or she was more actually than what she was saying and apart from once or twice where the players have gone oh I don't really trust Alina very much they've otherwise completely taken everything she's done and said at face value and have have trusted her implicitly so when they arrived at the city, they went to the triumvirate to try and find Resim, because that was the last place he'd been. Whilst in the, in the court of the triumvirate, they, they noticed an old adherent of Jubal's, a, blo- a bloke called Abdelakar, who was there, and they challenged him. And he seemed a bit shifty, and he left, and they decided to follow him. And he went back to a, uh, to a big building in this city, and they decided to wait and see what, see what happened at the same time Alina who'd said she was staying back on the ship decided to sneak off and they realised that she'd snuck off and then started to, to get a bit more suspicious about, suspicious about her motives so they then found her coming to this building and challenging her uh, and her, her claim that she was doing um, a little bit of undercover work to try and help them yeah, they, didn't really, they didn't really take that, they were, they were suspicious about that they then went into the building and saw Abdelkar talking to a man who then claimed he was Resim at this moment alina got very upset and said that that's not resim what have they done with resim this is something's going on here this is this is uh, there's a plot you know we're being screwed over here and she drew her gun and shot one of them shot abdelkar and this obviously burst into a fight so the players were all what the hell are you doing this is ridiculous we can talk about this trying to stop her she then put her hand up and in some kind of mystical way, which is a talent, which I've introduced for this game called Mind Warp, she'd spent some time over the previous weeks and months covertly influencing the crew members on the ship. And two of them failed their roles. So both 8-Bit and Carter were stunned. They couldn't take any action at all. So she was clearly up to something. Having shot Abdelakar, Hanbal went up to try and rescue him, save him. He'd been shot in the throat, was going to die. She then grabbed dress him and put a knife to his throat at the same time outside a group of Zelosian acolytes were seen rushing towards the building it was clear there were they had to stop her Ajit who was outside shot through the window with his sniper rifle hit uh, Alina with the shot but her armour took the blow and it shimmered in a very strange way it shimmered in a way that they'd only seen once before and that was in the animate armour that a witch smeller oh, had been wearing, words. that now Osgar had taken off the dead witch smeller and was using, and it was Zalosian animate armor. So they realised that there was something really bad going on here. But it was a great moment because Paul, playing eight bit, loved Alina. Uh, he's, he was he was saying, she you know she's our friend. We we can't possibly killer she's she's been been helping us so he put himself up as a shield as a human shield to try and protect her from uh from the fight that was going on morgan was a morgan who's played agit was at the point of shooting 8-bit to put him down and get him out of the way when tony who was playing handbell took a shot at alina the bullet didn't get through her armor she then thrust she killed resim with a knife through, through his throat and then put a knife up to the hilt in Handbell's chest, there was a critical roll to be had. We rolled sixty-four, where sixty-five is a, is an instant kill. But Tony only had three minutes to live at that point. He was down, um, and it was at that moment that Eight um, Bit decided that he had to try and stop her. So he then did an attack with his knife, uh, and it made just such a fabulous, a fabulous moment. And this is this is this was one of those climactic battles that as a GM you always want to get into because not only was there real tension in the room because everybody felt that this was a fight that they could lose there was great role playing from all of them and Paul in particular uh, playing 8-bit in love with Alina and then the dice rolls actually really added to the tension so when I rolled for Tony's critical hit I asked him if he wanted to roll the dice he didn't Uh, I asked him which dice did he want me to roll first And it came up... Well, you couldn't have had any worse and not died. You know, 64 is the highest Mm. roll you get without an instant kill. So that was brilliant. But things were looking really bad at that point. They also realised by that point that Alina had the nine lives talent. So you could switch (laughs) critical hits around. So 8-bit had an attack. used his knife on her. Got got enough successes to have two critical rolls. Rolled the first one. It came out as... 21 or something really minor and he rolled the second one and it was double six and so he basically thrust his knife right through the back of her head and the woman he loved and tried to protect he just sort of brutally slaughtered and it was just one of those fantastic games where everything came together
1: and the dice rolls did what the dice rolls should have done exactly narratively
0: completely (laughs) add to the completely add to the tension Everybody, it was a great game. Everybody really enjoyed it. Abdelakar survived and Hanbal was saved. And the end of the scenario was a week or so later, Abdelakar, his voice still rasping and husky because of the damage that had been done by Alina's bullet, going to see them and saying, the real wrestling will see you when you're ready. And that was the end of the scenario. And it worked brilliantly. It was just, it was great. And you know what it's like, you know, any 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 player who's had a, a, a similar game, sometimes it's quite hard to put into words how kind of exciting and how tense it all was. But it it, it that, that climactic battle, which had been coming for the entire campaign, uh, really worked, and uh, I was delighted at how well it how well it played out. Brilliant. So that was uh, and it is where we are, or as far as I'm going to go in the podcast. So we had a scenario uh, we played on Wednesday this week, a couple of days ago. And I will explain what happened in that one next time.
1: In our anniversary
0: episode. In our anniversary episode, absolutely.
1: We'll talk about the anniversary episode shortly. But before then, you've got a talent of the episode that comes specifically out of this situation, haven't you?
0: I have. So uh, the the Mind Warp talent, which I gave to Alina, which has been running now in this campaign well, for months, ever since I started uh, with her in it. I thought I'd do that up because it's quite an interesting little talent and I offer it to, to our listeners. Excellent. Let's have a listen to that. When I was a youngster, I was part of a war games club, the Highfield Wargamers, we were called. Matt, Andy and Tony were founder members and I was an early recruit. We had a group of friends that evolved over the years as people went off to uni, didn't go to uni, got jobs, didn't get jobs, you know, the sort of thing. But at one stage in this evolution we had a regular group of me, Matt, two Andes, Roger, John, and Mike. John liked to play devious and untrustworthy characters, and one of the Andes liked nothing more than to outsmart the other players. It was a bit of a heady mix that led to a lot of player infighting, jostling for power, and some serious PvP action. That was all well and good, and a lot of fun for the main part. At some point I'll have to recount the story when Mike and I, despite a lot of effort to save him, killed Roger by accident. But as time wore on, the appeal of always distrusting and always trying to outthink your fellow players lost its shine, and good old collaborative role-playing became the order of the day. In our group now, we have very little PvP going on, and when we have had it, for example in Matt's recent Fate campaign, when Tony's character was captured, then impersonated by a human-eating alien, which was then played masterfully by Tony, it has been for the best of narrative reasons. It's also led to some fabulous and memorable moments, like when we uncovered Tony as an alien. So sometimes it can be good to mix up the dynamic, but only for a really good story-driven reason. In the Spectral Corsair campaign, whilst we haven't had any player-versus-player stuff going on, we did have a traitor in the midst of the crew. Alina Abdesalam. An NPC they met right at the start. An ally, apparently. Someone on their side who had the same mission as them. Someone for whom they'd risked their lives to save. Although in doing so, they were protecting their only clue to completing the mission, so maybe this wasn't entirely altruistic. But we found out in the last scenario that she was playing them from the start. She was a witch smeller. A Zelosian fanatic out to find Rissa for her own reasons. As GM, I'd planned this story arc from the start, and I knew that a climactic conflict was almost inevitable. I also knew that the Coriolis combat system is deadly as hell, and I needed Alina to have some clear advantage against the crew, or that climactic conflict might just be one to hit roll, one good crit, and game over Alina. This did happen to the first witch smeller I put up against the crew back in episode two of the campaign. So much for my first stab at a witch-smeller nemesis for the crew. So I conjured a mystical power called Mind Warp to help her. This power allowed her to subtly and over time exert an influence over some of the crew and take them out of that fight, at least for a little bit. This and the fact that 8-Bit was in love with her and Paul played that really well made this conflict everything I'd wanted it to be. But this mystical talent helped me bring the story to this point. I think it has excellent potential as a tool for an NPC who is working against a group of characters. It could also play nicely into a little bit of PvP, in-group squabbling. If one of your players has had enough of all that lovey-dovey, let's be nice to one another malarkey. So I offer it here, as this episode's Talent of the Episode. Mystical Talent Mind Warp You have the ability to tap into the icon's soothing energies and gently mould the minds of others. You can influence people in your favour through the power of your personality and mystical skills, building up the strength of that influence over time. This talent only works on those who have either a positive or at least a non-hostile attitude towards you. Building your influence with a specific victim requires a moment of quiet or intimacy. It's only in these moments that your victim's mind is open to your suggestion, in a way that allows you to work your powers without their notice. Mind Warp is significantly less effective against other mystics or spiritual beings. To build your influence over another, you need to make an opposed mystical powers versus mystical powers or empathy role in a suitably quiet or intimate moment. If your victim feels positively towards you, you get a plus one die bonus. If you succeed, the victim is unaware of your actions and is cursed with a negative dice modifier equal to the number of overall successes you achieved in that opposed role. Using mindwarp to create this influence can only be attempted once per situation and obviously costs one darkness point to do so. But otherwise, it can be attempted any number of times when similar circumstances occur. Subsequent successes are added to the victim's negative dice modifier to a maximum of minus three dice. If the victim wins any of these opposed rolls, any previously earned a negative dice are lost, and they experience an uneasy and suspicious feeling about you and your behaviour. This negative modifier remains dormant until you wish to activate it. It can be activated at any time when you are within sight or sound of your victim. Once activated, the victim has to make an empathy test with the negative dice modifier applied or the mind warp takes effect. The victim will always have a minimum of one die to resist the mind warp's activation. A successful mind warp has the following effects. The victim is free to act but cannot take any action that could be hostile to you or your interests. This may include agreeing to a cause of action or point of view they otherwise might have disagreed with, but they will not take any action that would directly harm themselves or go directly against their personal interests. However, if they are conflicted between these points, they are effectively confused into inaction for that turn. Each subsequent turn, they can re-roll an empathy test as a quick action, with the mind warp negative modifier to resist its effects. If they take any physical damage from any source, they also get a free Empathy Resist role. And if the mystic who instigated the Mind Warp attacks the victim themselves, the influence of the Mind Warp is broken for good. Cost, five experience points.
1: Well, I like reminiscing over, uh, over things like fate and uh, stuff like that. <laughs> but I'm struggling, listening to that, to really understand... What the talent does for the, well, I, for an NPC, it's easy, but can the talent be used against a PC, And which I think it was in your adventure, and what did that mean for the player or players involved?
0: Yes, so um, I think this does work very well for an NPC, as you say, and it did work very well. So it gave me the opportunity to make that climactic fight a bit more climactic rather than um, it being potentially a damp squib, because we know how quickly people can get killed uh, in, a, in a Coriolis fight. So I think this is a talent that might work really well for a more political or intrigue-based campaign. So there's two things that I kind of thought about in in mind of this for the player. The first one would be, if you've got a player who is in the group, but maybe has a secret that... If that came out would be would you know would turn the rest of the group against them. You know, I could think of a lot of games, and going back to the you know the you know, the days where we used to do kind of a lot of that PvP where, you know, the first game that John ever played, he would just start wiring up the ship to stop us getting on it and getting off it.
1: And it reminds me of the um the software uh when 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 I was running a battlefield management uh, software company, uh that Included sort of cyber targeting uh, and Mike's character, I think it was Mike's character, yes it was, was, was the software engineer and he'd put a little subroutine in there that meant nobody could ever shoot him when they were using uh, my yes. battlefield management software and I think there was a point when I wanted to shoot him and couldn't.
0: <laughs> yeah, well that was that, that was it wasn't it, you were always uh you know making secret insurance policies against the other players knowing that one yes. day one of them would try and shoot you
1: so that's it. that's kind of what i mean so imagine i'm a player and i want to shoot either the npc or another player that has been secretly using this power on me yep. and i point my gun at him or her yep. uh what do you as gm tell me
0: you would you would have to make an empathy roll with a Negative modified, depending on how many successes that the opponent had had against you when they were Mm -hmm. influencing you uh, in advance. And if you failed, you wouldn't be able to do anything that was directly harmful to that individual. So in essence, what it does is it might give that character a chance to escape, say, or it'll give that character a chance to explain. Or, you know, uh, basically means that if you, if that character was doing something which was considered to be potentially uh, against the interest of the group, uh, you know, and we'd often get players who will say, well, I actually fancy being a, a, a witch smeller, or I want to be something else that actually goes quite firmly against some of the other characters. So, for example, uh, in, in your campaign, Yafet and uh, Salem potentially are coming to the point where we might end up at the wrong end of the barrel with one another
1: you do have diametrically opposed views of we do yeah
0: <laughs> so so if one of so if one of us was so let's say i let's say yafet was a mystic and he had this ability i could then over time influence salem it, you'd have to roll it in such a way that it wasn't obvious that i was doing something But then the day when he finds out that he's got to kill me and he turns his gun on me. And my character doesn't want to kill his character because I care about him and he saved my life once. It gives me the option of stopping him and then getting the hell out before it becomes a gunfight where one of us or both of us will die.
1: Yeah. But as a player, he does get a chance to beat that by rolling empathy.
0: He does. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool.
1: Yeah, no, that that reassures me. That reassures me.
0: So the other thing I was thinking was, if it's in a kind of intrigue or political campaign or scenario, this might be really, really useful if you want to influence an NPC in a position of authority to either agree with your policy or agree with your line, or maybe just to to change them to give you a a position or a promotion that they might otherwise never have given you or something else. So it, it offers you that kind of underhand intrigue element if you wanted to to use it but when I was writing it I thought it's quite complicated in playing it during the the you know the games for the campaign it hasn't felt complicated because I've obviously just done it as I've gone on and once you understand it it's quite straightforward but one thing you note about talents written in the Coriolis book they're about five eight ten lines long at the most most of the yes. talents I write are a lot longer than that. Um, even after you take away the sort of the, the bit of background stuff I put to, to to sort of liven up the actual text of the talent itself. So I, I, I get that, and it won't be for everybody, but I think there's a there's a mechanic here that actually might work in some circumstances. And it certainly worked for my NPC in this situation to give Alina a fighting chance in that final climax, that climactic battle.
1: Yeah. Well, it definitely worked, didn't it, in in, in that adventure. Now, I'm just aware of the fact that I've got to go and pick my boy up from the cinema shortly. (laughs) So, uh, we ought to bring this to a reasonably speedy conclusion.
0: Yeah, that's fine. Well, We're we're still running at about an hour nearly, so... um... It's not, it's, yeah. not like we are, it's not like we're selling our, our dear listeners short, I don't think. So, uh, <laughs> no,
1: no. And uh, the exciting news is, as we've mentioned before, our next episode, as long as we get it recorded in time, will be our anniversary episode.
0: da 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 No, that's the... Ma- no, we're we not never getting got married, are we? <laughs> no, no.
1: I was at your wedding, but I wasn't the one with the ring. Or, or either the best man with the ring or the one you put the ring on.
0: <laughs> well this just maybe this is a, a marriage made in the darkness between the stars, perhaps. Maybe that's what yeah, I'm trying to say. Yeah. yeah well, anyway I don't know
1: what Jenny would say about that. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Yeah. So so next week is our anniversary episode. Next um, month. Next well, next yeah, ne- next next time. time is our anniversary two or three weeks episode. it'll be, yeah. Yeah. Uh we've got some thoughts about that. Uh we will try and make it a bit of a jumping on episode for the many new listeners who I like to think have joined us since all these Kickstarters came out. So we're not going to be doing quite a clip show, but we will be looking back a bit over our first year, I think.
0: Yeah, and as a way of just kind of uh, uh, reminding everybody how much crap we've talked over the last 12 months. Exactly. Yes.
1: But also, I I aim to be useful, and I think we should also have something that's going to be a little bit of... uh, how to play Coriolis for all the new players that these recent Kickstarters have done Um, what we thought we might look at next time is something that's relatively well I think unique to the Coriolis RPG and that's the idea of the group concept and and how you might actually use that
0: I think that's a good idea, let's do that
1: Uh, and and I think that's all all we've got planned so far we'll have some more content because we always do by the time (laughs) we actually sit down to record it But I guess in the meantime, it's goodbye for me.
0: Uh, And it's goodbye for me.
1: And may the icons bless your adventures. You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Fontfabric.